Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. Today, it's the money fantasy that most of us dream about. But what if it was reality? What if you came across a lump sum of money? It's yours. Are you going to invest in it all at a go? Or are you going to invest slow and steady? If markets are trending upward, it makes sense uh, to look for strategic asset allocation, get in the market as soon as you can. But to what extent does delaying investment come at a um, premium in certain kinds of markets? And how can you succeed if you have a lump sum of money at your disposal and you're thinking, what should you do with it? Money in different hands equals different opportunities, I think. So today we put that question to Christopher Tan, CEO of Provident. Chris, good morning. Hi, good morning, Michelle. We we just love today's idea, the idea for today's show, Chris. If mm. first up, give us a step back. If some, if you really did have a hundred thousand dollars, would mm. you invest? And let's take you back to you, the age of the millennial listening in. Okay, mm. you're twenty four, twenty three. You come across a hundred thousand dollars. It's all yours, Chris. Mm. Um, are you going to invest all of it, or would you spend some of it? Would you put some towards enjoying today, or is it all going to go towards investing? Just curious. Yeah, for me, I would definitely take some of the money to enjoy it. Well, I think it's important to enjoy, you know, that money and not just um, put everything towards the end. I mean, I know everybody talk about delayed gratification, yeah. but life is so uncertain, right? I mean, I do not know whether that future will happen. And actually, there are a lot of important things today that I can use the money for, build memories, which are a very important investment as well. So I'll definitely spend some of it today. <laughs> I'm glad you say that. You know, it makes it sound all the more relatable and real for our investors listening in, especially young millennials just getting started. So right. 100000 in your hands, Chris, what's the first step? Well, I think we are, uh, if we are investing towards uh, a life event that is uh, going to happen very much later, mm-hmm. right? Because it all depends on whether you are at, at what stage of your life. Right? If you're talking about millennium, a millennial, he has got a lot of time, he's still investing and accumulating towards, say, for example, a life event like okay, retirement or buying a, a building a house in 10 years' time. Mm-hmm. I think the first thing that needs to be done is to determine uh, your need to take risks. And when I say your need to take risks, I mean uh, it is related to your need for returns. Because the higher the need for returns, the higher the need to take risk. So, for example, if you are you know, needing, say, 7-8% return per year, yeah. um, then you need to take more risk. But if you are saying that, oh, I, I just actually you know, want to beat inflation, um, and as, as today you, know, you can actually get T-bills at about you know, close to 4%, then your need to take risk becomes lower. And secondly, I think you need to determine your ability because you may have the need to take risks, but you may not have the ability to take risks. So what determines your ability? So Michelle will be things like uh, your time horizon. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, if you are only investing for two years, you need the money to buy a house, putting it into a BTO, then your time horizon is very short and you don't have the ability to take huge risks. Right? But of course, if you are investing towards something that you need to achieve in 10, 15 years' time, then your ability to take risks is higher. And of course, other things such as financial health, insurance coverage, your liquidity needs, all these are things that will affect your ability. And thirdly and lastly, uh, I think something that is probably harder to know mm-hmm. is to know your psychological willingness to take risks. Some factors to help you ascertain that would be investment knowledge. You know, Michelle, if today 
uh, we don't understand investment very well, mm-hmm. my willingness to take risks will be lower, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, but if I understand the market, if I understand investments, then my willingness will be higher. Investment experience, but I mean, if you have got very bad experience, then maybe my willingness will be lower. And of course, sometimes uh, significant events in life, like you witness someone losing money and as uh, uh, losing money in the markets, and as a result, the family broke up, mm. and your willingness to take risk becomes lower. So, I think that's the first step. You need to sit down, assess your need, ability, willingness, and once you assess that, uh, then you can decide on the kind of asset allocation that you talk about to put your money in, right? If you your need is very low, your ability to take risk is very low. Uh, even if you have got a high willingness, well, perhaps you should put more of your money into bonds, right? But if your willingness is uh, very high, your need to take risk is high, your ability to take risk is high, then yes, you can consider putting all your money into the equities market. Those are great questions to ask ourselves about how much risk that we're willing to take in the first place. So that's a great first step. Um, People wonder whether they should get into the markets, the all-at-once approach or the break it up and let's go slow. So if you had a lump sum, would you invest it in the markets immediately to gain access given where markets are today? Or would you say, no, dollar cost averaging is better given where we are today? Well, I think if you look at the evidence, right, the stock market as, whole, uh, as a whole always go up in the long run, right? I mean, yes, from time to time, we have financial crisis. Thankfully, that doesn't happen every year. And the good news also is actually human beings, the markets, they are very resilient because no matter how bad uh, these crises are, over the last 100 years, the markets have always recovered. Uh, they, they have always recovered itself, right? So that being the case, if we know that the market goes up in the long run, mm-hmm. generally speaking, I would say that it would be better to do lump sum, right? Because if market goes up in the long run and you're investing for the long run, if you put money in you know, every month, actually over time, you're actually buying higher and higher. But however, it's not so simple. There is this psychology of investing again that involves people you know, they find it scary to put everything they have at one go. I mean, 100000 for a young person is a lot of money. Yeah. So they somehow feel better that um, it is better to buy in small amounts. If that helps them to stay invested, I would say, well, go do the dollar cost averaging because the benefits in staying invested for the long term far outweighs the cost of potentially getting a slightly lower return when you dollar cost average as compared to investing in a lump sum. Because I mean, yes, you may get a higher return, but well, if the investor doesn't stay invested, you are not going to get the return. And also practically speaking, of course, I know we're talking about 100,000 lump sum, but in truth, uh, not everybody will have that windfall. So it's probably more practical to put in money on a monthly basis. If you are going to invest in a lump sum, if you are going to, uh, if you're thinking of breaking it up into tranches, where should you keep the tranches in the meantime in the bank account? Yeah, I mean, when we say uh, investing um, in tranches, actually what we mean is that you probably spread your, say, 100,000 over three or six tranches. Mm-hmm. So you're going to do that every month. You're not going to like try and time the market and say, okay, I'm going to put in the first tranche today. And then I'll see and, you know, and wait. Uh, where the markets are going before I make the second trend. Because the truth is that it is very hard to predict where the markets are going. So if you're just going to spread it over three to six months, then I'll say, yeah, just put it in the bank account, right? Because you need that liquidity. Okay. How should someone who is still trying to save for retirement, what should they do if they come across a lump sum of money and they want to invest? 
Yeah, so for someone who is uh, saving towards retirement, I've explained it earlier, right? It's, it's the same, right? You first have to assess your need, ability, and willingness, decide the portfolio, put in the money, and then you stay invested for the long term. Now, it doesn't mean, I have to say this, it doesn't mean that when I say you stay invested for the long term, in between you do nothing, right? You, you, you just put it in the market, you close your eyes. It's not like that. Once you decide on the strategic asset allocation, like for example, you decide to put 80% to equities, 20% to bonds, and then you execute your asset allocation, say via ETFs, right? Because they are low-cost instruments, you track the market. I mean, that's a good idea. But it doesn't mean that you do nothing because I think there is still a need to quote-unquote monitor. And I don't mm. mean monitor the market. I mean, you've got to look at the ETF that you buy. Uh, maybe you have bought some funds instead of ETFs. You've got to monitor these funds and see whether they behave in a way uh, whereby you expect them to behave, right? I mean, if the funds are supposed to stay invested, uh, the mandate is actually not to outperform the market, stay invested in the market. Uh, it should worry you that when the markets are going down, hey, your portfolios are going up. <laughs> you know? so, because I know you're happy that the portfolios are going up, but then that's not the mandate given to the manager and you should be worried about it. So, well, you actually need to uh, monitor the behaviors of the instruments that you have invested in. You need to look at the, the returns the portfolios are giving you because I suppose when you are investing, remember I talk about your need for returns. Yeah. Um, yeah, so maybe you say that I need 7 to 8% return and I invest in a 100% equity portfolio. But hey, over time, it doesn't seem like it's giving you 7 to 8%. An example I always use is that if you invest uh, in the S&P 500 in the 90s, uh, you would have experienced like about 13% per year. And so if you use that assumption and plan your retirement, plan your, your, do your financial planning based on 13% per year, nowadays, it's very hard to get 13% anymore oh, yeah. because the world has become more mature, right? So I think you need to continue to monitor those things because if you are realistically not getting those kind of returns, uh, you could go back to your drawing board and say, okay, I may have to save more now you know, to, in order to reach uh, the goals that I want to achieve. You know, it's a process of continually adjusting and you have to be active and yes. ultimately be accountable for your investments. Yeah, absolutely right. But I just want to clarify that when we say act, uh, active, uh, I don't mean you trade the market. Mm -hmm. uh, what I mean is that even if you buy uh, passive instruments, you buy those index ETFs and all that, you need to be actively looking at your portfolio and make adjustments. And I don't mean trying to move markets. Huh? Yeah, make adjustments to say, okay, maybe this instrument is not really giving me the return I expect. I need to change it. I need to change to a better manager. I need to change to a better ETF that tracks the market better. And that's what I mean by active. Got it. Got it. Here's a million dollar question, Chris. Mm -hmm. So you've come across $100,000. What should you invest in? Well, I think in Provident, I mean, we have this investment philosophy that has uh, four pillars. So firstly, let me talk about uh, what these four pillars are, uh, because you'll give um, listeners a guide to how they should be picking things to invest in. So for us, we invest in assets that firstly must have economic contribution because we believe that for an asset class to um, you know, generate long-term returns, there must be an economic basis or theory behind it. Uh, if an investment does not create any economic value, then we should not expect uh, this kind of investments to be uh, able to give long-term investment returns. Um, so this is important. Now, Secondly, to ensure reliability of the returns, uh, for us, we then validate uh, some of these uh, asset classes with uh, empirical observations. So that's the second pillar. And this 
evidence must be observed across multiple markets and economic cycles. Um, that means we only invest in asset class that over a long period of time and across different markets that showed that they give returns reliably. For example, I mean, crypto has not proven itself yet. I mean, there are, there are seasons, periods whereby they did very well, but overall, it has not proven itself over a long period of time, right? So that's the second pillar. Now, the third pillar is implementation. Now, to further ensure reliability of returns, we do not invest in things that try to guess the market. So for us, we rather construct globally diversified portfolio and invest in low-cost, evidence-based uh, instruments like, like index. So what are some examples uh, that will meet these requirements as an investor? Well, global equities, yes. It has got an economic basis. Bonds, yes. How do you invest it? Best way to invest it, in my opinion, low-cost index tracking funds, right? Because it's low-cost and because there are evidence to show that most times, active managers cannot beat the index. So why waste time, right? So just buy the index. Uh, well, you can buy global equities and bonds that meets your ESG requirement. Why? Because maybe personally, you like to express your value through ESG, so you can do that. Well, other instruments that will meet the requirements, T-bills, investment-grade bonds, right? So uh, these are things that they can consider to invest in, but based on some of the, the guidelines I've given. Based on the guidelines, would money market funds come in the picture? Yes, because most money market funds, underlying money market funds would be short, durator, uh, sh- uh, short duration uh, bonds, right? So uh, bonds are definitely a security. It has got an economic basis. And over a long period of time, right, we have shown to prove itself to give the returns. So I would say money market funds is uh, definitely a, a yes. But uh, just take note, uh, because sometimes the word money market funds seem to give people the impression that they are buying into cash, right? Mm. And uh, I'm sure, Michelle, you remember, you know, uh, the last 18 months, there are investors who complain that they lose money in money market funds because when they first bought it, say, three years ago, I mean, they kept thinking they are putting like into cash. But actually, the truth is, underlying these money market funds are actually bonds. You can lose money. But yes, it is definitely an instrument that I would invest in because it meets the requirement. Can I ask you a question about your first pillar? Sure. So you mentioned you invest in sort of asset classes that have some sort of economic contribution. Can you explain a little about what that means? Do you mean it adds to the world? In, 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 let's say you want to invest in Brazilian nuts. Mm. Yeah, know? so... Yeah, so when we say that you know it's an asset class that have got economic uh, contribution, as I mentioned, there must be an economic basis or theory behind it. So let's take stocks for example, right? Equities. So why is it that stock will have long-term returns, right? Because there is economic basis. Because stocks are actually you're holding shares of company, right? And this this company produce goods and services, and they sell these goods and services, and they create a revenue, and and there is a long-term basis of revenue coming in for this company, right? I mean, if you buy into something that is pretty speculative, right? For example, commodities, right? right? So uh, use nuts, well, a more common asset, one of commodity would be like gold, right? And if you look at gold, I mean, gold doesn't earn a return, right? I mean, mm. uh, gold is really a commodity. What, is, what do we use gold for? Primarily for jewelry, uh, we use some of gold for, you know, the circuitry in those integrated chips, mm-hmm. right? So it's a demand and supply for, for a commodity. And so it's demand and supply that drives the price up and down. But if you suddenly see, you know, gold prices, you know, going up very high, and actually there is no sudden increase in demand uh, for real use of this gold, 
then it can only be speculative reason, right? That people maybe they you know they don't uh, believe in the fiat currency anymore. They want to keep go as a, a, a safety, right? So so it's quite different. Okay, um, let's talk a little bit about what to do in today's market. Actually, gold has done very well with geopolitical crises. It's it's a safe haven. So with the flight to safety, people are looking at have been looking at gold. So with the market looking so volatile today, and with the current geopolitical situation, if we did come in across a large sum of money, would you suggest waiting for things to settle before plunging into public markets? Yeah, so I mean, what we are going through right now is not new. I mean, if you had invested $1 in an ETF that tracks the MSCI uh, World Index in 1970, uh, by the end of uh, last year, it would have been worth $80, mm-hmm. right? $1 to $80. Wow. And throughout this period, the, the world went through, for example, in the 70s, the Arab oil embargo, oil price quadrupled. S&P 500 crashed about 43% in the 70s. And if you remember in the 80s, the first Iraq war, 90s Asian financial crisis. I was already in business. You know, and 2000 internet bubble burst. September 11 terrorist attack in 2001. Second Iraq war in 2000. Subprime crisis GSC in 2007 and 2008. And then pandemic in 2020. So the world has gone through all these things and they are not new. But yet, you know, the markets have gone up from $1 to $80. So as I said, no matter how bad the crisis, Michelle, we always recover. And it's very difficult to try and time whether it is a uh, this is the best time, should I wait? Because the market is a leading indicator and it goes up in anticipation that things will become better maybe six to nine months before even anything becomes better. Mm. Right? So if it interests you, I'll quote this study. Uh, this is a study done on the S&P 500 between 1991 to 2021. The annualized return during that period was 11.24% per year right? over that period of time. And if you try to find the best time to enter the market, if you happen to just miss the best one-week return, you lose about 0.63% as compared to if you stay invested. If you miss the best one-month return, you lose about 0.81% per year. If you miss the best three-month return, you lose about 1.2% per year. And if you miss the best six-month return, you lose about 1.49% per year compared to if you stay invested. And lastly, if you miss the best one-year return, you lose about 2.05% per year compared to if you have stayed invested. So there is a huge cost if you missed it. And like I said, it's so difficult to guess, you know, because to get it right, you've got to get two things right. Firstly, you've got to get the event right. And secondly, you've got to, you've got to get how the market will respond, right? So I think if you are investing for the long term, Anytime is a good time. You want to use that long runway to your advantage. Uh, I came across a great book recently called Just Keep Buying. It's my new mm. three-word ma- three mantra uh, that I share with, with people that I speak with. Just keep buying mm. uh, if you want to do well in the markets. Right. Uh, and by that, we mean just keep buying income-producing yeah. assets. All right. It seems very convoluted and difficult sometimes, this whole uh, idea of wading into public markets. What do you think about you know do-it-yourself investing versus seeking out an advisor even if you have a small sum say just a hundred thousand that's all you have well firstly i'm an advisor so whatever i'm gonna say is biased <laughs> 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 i better state my conflict thanks of for the honesty yeah but well i think let's first look at what you should get from using a trusted advisor right i, I think the trusted advisor is supposed to take you through a series of important steps for you to have a successful investment experience well so some of these steps would be well he's supposed to do a deep conversation with you to really understand the important relationships that you have, set and quantify meaningful life goals with those relationships in mind, and 
then determining financial needs at different stages of life. Um, it's supposed to help you establish your need, ability, and willingness to take risks, which I mentioned. Then it's supposed to help you determine the investment portfolio asset allocation that is suitable for your risk appetite. And find suitable instruments to execute your policy, uh, your, your investment uh, portfolio. Rebalance your portfolio regularly. Check this portfolio. Right? Monitor the instrument. Monitor the performance. Uh, and then continue to look out for suitable instruments to add into your portfolio. And when the markets become very, very turbulent, it's supposed to help you manage your emotions and help you stay invested. And then regularly meet you to track the progress. So this is what you are supposed to get when you use an advisor. Now, if you can do all these things on your own, or you say this, some of these things are not important, or I like to do these things on my own mm. and I have time, then forget about using an advisor. Save money because there's a cost in using an advisor. You should really do it yourself, right? In fact, when I say you do it yourself, I'm not even, uh, I, I'm not even talking about a robo because a robo is sort of like an in-between, right? You are not really doing everything yourself when you do a robo, right? If you really want to do it yourself, just open a stockbroking account you know, and start buying this ETF. It saves you money. Otherwise, you should outsource it to a trusted advisor. And maybe I'll end with this analogy. Okay. Right? So if you go to a robo, it's like buying set lunches. Right? But if you prefer to do it yourself, you just go and open a stockbroking account. It's like buying the ingredients and you cook it yourself. Yeah, <laughs> but if you hit it and you want it to be customized to your liking, Right. Then you should go to the restaurant and you know tell them how to cook it for you. And that's using an advisor. Love the food analogy. I like how you didn't equate doing it yourself with being at a buffet line because that would have killed the analogy, I think. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm glad it works. <laughs> Thank you very much, Chris, for joining us this morning. Thank you very much for having me. He's Christopher Tan, CEO of Provident. What would you do if you had $100,000 at your disposal and you wanted to start investing? This has been Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.